Well, it's good to see you. Will you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of James? It's my privilege to get to preach uh, today's sermon and our ongoing series that we're calling Faith at Work. The letter of James, what a great gift it is to us from God. It's only three pages long, five chapters, but so full of God's good word for us and counsel. And I want to just preach today from chapter 5, verse 12. Um, and as you're about to see, there's a lot to be had in just the one verse. So I'm excited about what God has in store for us in the sermon that I'm calling Yes, Be Yes. That will make sense here in a moment. Look with me at James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. He starts by saying, but above all, my brothers. This phrase, but above all, needs to be rightly understood, not as James saying that this point is above all the rest of what he said in the letter, but is a high point in this last portion of the text that we find here in chapter 5, specifically following Uh, these words to his blood-bought brothers and sisters. He says in verse 7, James calls his brothers to be patient. Verse 9, to not grumble against one another. In verse 11, he gives another reminder that we are to remain steadfast in our faith. And now in verse 12, that we are to be people of our word. Consider with me the practical and oh-so-helpful counsel of James, ordained by God, that he's giving here in light of his desire to say, as he's been saying throughout the letter, that those who are truly saved, their faith will remain at work. Faith remaining at work is evidenced by patience in the midst of hardship and long-suffering in the sinful world that we live in. Our ongoing patience is the evidence of our faith at work. Faith remaining at work is also evidenced by not grumbling against our brothers and sisters in Christ, but fighting for unity, that we would push off any sin that would cause us to, behind closed doors or between each other, murmur against each other, but to press in for the unity of the body of Christ, the testimony God's given us in this world to labor and grow together in God's holy name. Faith remaining at work is evidenced by remaining steadfast in the midst of great trials and setbacks, that we finish the race, that we show others what endurance and victory in God looks like. So when James says to his beloved brothers in Christ, let us be people of our word, as he says here in verse 12, let us be people who are are known to be trustworthy and upright in our words, our promises, our commitments. It's another evidence that we are walking by faith and not by sight. It allows us to honor God and not do what in any given moment is most convenient for us. It allows us to show that honoring God is most important to us. How I pray that you would be stretched today. I've been stretched in my preparation to preach today. It's been a joy to be in God's Word. I'm praying for real conviction that God would love us well to not leave us where we were at when we came in, but to to show us how we could repent of sin and turn to grow in Him and be transformed in these ways. Look with me to get started at the end of the verse first. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We need to see that this is a command with a warning. To take this most seriously, James gives his counsel to warn his beloved brothers. He wants to show them what their faith at work looks like. And if it's not at work, then the faith they claim to be or have is false. If their faith is false and not true saving faith, then they are rightly under condemnation. 
The word condemnation used here in the Greek is important to see rightly so we have its application correct. Because James is not intending to mean that this would just mean chastisement for believers, but instead damnation for unbelievers. The Greek word Christus used here for condemnation means damnation, judgment. So James is saying we must take this practice of life seriously because this practice tells the truth about the state of our heart, the state of our faith. It reveals our true identity if we belong to Christ or not, if we're saved and secure in Him or still in our sin, thereby deserving condemnation. It's an evidence on the outside of what's happening on the inside. Now quickly, James is not saying that true Christians will never err with our tongue or with our promises. That perfection belong to Christ alone. We who are born of the seed of Adam are born sinners. We have a, a fleshly nature that we must fight regularly. Praise God for new life in Christ and the power of the gospel, the power of our Lord to fight that fight. For without new birth without saving faith and belonging to Jesus we are dead in sin in every way and that brings me to really point us to the seriousness of this exhortation the warning that comes with it why ask why make this warning why spend time exhorting the brethren to be honest and stand by their word and the reality is because we're sin- because we're sinners because we're liars That's our natural disposition. Our selfishness wants to do what's best for us, what's convenient for us. So I will promise something and then change that because now something else serves me better. Or I'll lie to you, manipulate the situation, make a false oath to get something I want, although what I'm saying is not true. It's my sin at work. It's our sin at work. When we give our way to sin, we're giving ourselves to self-preserving, self-projecting, self-determination to have it our way. Our flesh wants what it wants, and it will lie to have it. Whether that's a lie on the front end, whereby we simply just don't tell the truth, or whether that's a lie on the back end, whereby we don't do what we said we would do, or we do what we said we wouldn't do. Make a promise that we wouldn't do something and then we do it anyway. One of the first ways our sin is made manifest in our actions in our earliest years of life is with lying. It's one of the ways you can see that little babies are sinners, are bound in sin by the seed of Adam. From conception, the word says, that we are guilty in sin and our nature is to sin. We need to be, every one of us, reborn, given spiritual life by the sovereignty of God. Every little one is a sinner and finds their way to sin. Consider with me, no one teaches us to lie. Your littlest child at their youngest ages when lying begins, it's not like they observed an older person manipulate a situation and then processed in their mind, you know, that really worked out for that person's favor. I will use that tactic of manipulation so that next time it goes my way. Right? Our our little ones are not observing that and then coming up with these things. No, they just lie because they want what they want or they don't want to get in trouble. It is the reality of their flesh at work. Not, not only do we, are we naturally liars, but then we become very practiced at this over the years of our lives, in our youth and into adulthood. We will lie about the littlest things, some of the most mundane things, just to shape the way people see us or to make things go our way. We lie to people who we want to be our employers because we really want to get a job. Or to our teachers because we really think that we deserve a different grade. We lie to our loved ones 
to avoid conflict. We lie to ourselves about what is really true or really happening in any given situation. Our society is built on a framework of lies. Government officials lie to get into office. It's essentially the framework that, that it's built on. I mean, across the board, it doesn't matter which camp you belong to. It's the way the system flawed is built. The, the media lies to spin a story to meet their agenda or desired narrative. In a few days at our midweek gathering, we gather as a church uh, Wednesday nights from 6 to 8. Um, and that time is a time of fellowship. And then following one of the five of us who are on the teaching team teach through our Word of Truth catechism, the different points of faith of what God says about himself in the Word and gives us a more systematic way to, to understand the things of faith and life. And um, then for those of you who get committed to our church and get plugged in, eventually we, we encourage you to get plugged into a small group uh, that follows that teaching time. It's a wonderful time to be together. Children ministry is happening. Youth ministry is happening. It's a wonderful time to see our campus full of folks. I get the privilege of teaching this midweek and get the privilege of teaching on the topic of angels, demons, and Satan, according to the Word of God. Looking forward to that lesson this coming Wednesday. Feel free to join us at 6. The devil is declared by Jesus himself in Scripture to be the father of lies. John eight forty four. This is telling in and of itself, the father of fallen mankind is declared to be the father of lies. What this means is that we are either of the father of lies, Satan, because we're still in our sin, guilty of our sin, apart from a Savior, or we have saving faith, God has saved us, we belong to Christ, and therefore then belong to the father of light, or of truth, the holy God. If we practice sin and reject Jesus, the Bible says we are rightly under condemnation, guilty because of our sin. If we repent from sin and trust in Jesus, we are not under condemnation for our uh, faith in Christ and his perfect work on our behalf means that past, present, and future sin is paid for. It means I'm made new. It means now I'm, I died on my own agenda and I live for God's agenda. I'll fight my deepest fleshly longings in order to do what pleases and honors God. My faith will go to work in fighting sin. And it will remain at work until I'm called home in glory. One of the great ways our faith in Christ will work itself out is in honesty and in keeping our word. Jesus spoke about this on numerous accounts, uh, that our words would reveal the status of our faith, or lack thereof, of our being right with God or being under condemnation. Exactly the point that James is making in today's passage. Consider with me Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12, uh, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It is not that our words themselves are what we are judged by, but what those words reveal about our hearts, about who we are, about our faith. We'll dig into more of that later. But by way of transition back to the front of the verse, regular dishonesty in mankind has led mankind to impose this practice of making oaths. Oaths that um, are a way to declare in some kind of futile attempt or ongoing attempt to project that, no, I'm telling the truth. I know a lot of people lie, but I'll make this oath to tell you the truth or to, or to back a promise that has been made. And, and so there's, while there's a good use of, of oaths, there's this overplay that mankind has kind of gone to them. Uh, you know, we see it even in the youngest of ages. Oh, you know, do you swear I, I don't trust you? And we, we want to demand an oath because what they're saying is maybe not good enough. The custom of swearing oaths was actually a big part of the culture in biblical times. It had become especially rampant in the Jewish culture 
And therefore, Jewish believers were bringing that practice into the church. Thereby now, James is writing to the Jewish Christians. Christians, Jews who grew up in the Jewish culture but had now been saved to trust their life to Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. So, to point this out and bring clarity, he, James is saying such oath-taking was and is unnecessary among believers whose speech is to be honest and whose lives are to demonstrate integrity and credibility. This is why James and others speak of this topic in Scripture. So that we who belong to God and whose faith is at work can be truth-tellers and people of our word, and avoid unnecessary overplays of oaths, especially when linked to things we can't control or things we shouldn't swear by. So James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. First, in helping us understand this passage, the word swear here that James uses is not and does not mean to curse uh, or to use vulgar speech as we would maybe use it in a modern day to, to swear that person sweared. No, it's the other use of that word which means to make an oath. That's what he's speaking of. <clears throat> Let me first be extra clear in saying what James is not saying here. In some of these passages, when we read them too finitely, we can walk away with a wrong application. We must study God's Word within tota scriptura, with all of Scripture in mind, to let Scripture be interpreted by Scripture. This is an important historic practice, um, much of which many modern churches have done away with. And we walk into some of these passages and walk out with misunderstanding of what God's Word is really intending to stay in its context or in the totality of Scripture. You're going to see how important that is as we work through this this morning. He's not saying that we are never to make an oath or a promise or a covenant. People have wrongly interpreted these scriptures and said, oh, in the name of Christ, I cannot make an oath. That is a wrong understanding of scripture. We surely can and do make promises, make oaths, and even make covenants. And it's important. Some of these stand at very important junctions or, or moments of life. I mean, one of those moments for me was the day I was ordained. As, a, as a, a, a biblical pastoral elder of the church, raised up, vetted, qualified, and commissioned to do this work, to lead God's sheep, God's way, for God's glory, and for the good of the sheep, and not for myself. This is a serious commitment that a pastoral elder makes. There are many days whereby my commitment to shepherd this flock shapes the decisions that I make. The vow to lead for the good of the sheep and not myself. To avoid sin. To fight, to avoid, to become disqualified. Is something I take very seriously every day. This is no small commitment. It's a commitment that I've made that if I were to play light with that commitment would affect many, many people. Thereby, it's an oath that must be taken seriously. We see examples of uh, other um, O's that are, that are of serious moments in life. One of those is testimony in court. The oath one makes in a court of law to tell the truth before God is a serious oath. Perjury in a court of law is not only highly punishable by the authorities of the state, but a grievous sin before Christ our Lord, whom we Christians represent in the testimony of truth. We who claim the name of Christ should never be swayed to tweak our testimony because it might benefit me or someone else in the idea of good favor. No, first and foremost, we represent Jesus Christ our Lord and thereby must speak what is true. This is something we should take seriously while being under oath. We see other judicial-like oaths and of testimony made in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 22 gives testimony of a man who lost an animal entrusted to his care and was to swear that he did not steal it. Someone thought maybe he had a racket of 
saying, I'll watch your animal and then storing them up and telling them, I don't know. Numbers chapter 5, we see a woman was asked to swear before the priest that she did not have marital infidelity. We see other examples of these kinds of oaths being taken in Scripture over unique moments, especially under officials in that official capacity. Another one that is maybe the biggest oath one would ever make if God has called you to marriage is the covenant that one makes to their spouse to be in a one flesh union with them until death do them part. This is a serious oath. Our culture has decided to reprogram and repackage what all of this is intended to be. It's our desire here at the church, Disciples Church especially, to live according to God's word. God is the one who ordained, authored, designed, and oversees marriage. So we are to do marriage and practice it His way. We pastors here at Disciples Church take very seriously the covenant made before God in holy marriage. So much so that we are slow to perform weddings as wonderful as they are. It is of more importance that we have properly vetted couples uh, to help them be right and ready to marry, to make a commitment to be one until death do them part. This is also why we will not perform remarriages of people who are still under the covenant that they've made while a divorced spouse is still living. We take these oaths very seriously because they're oaths made before God because honoring God first and foremost is our highest concern. It is not convenience. It is not circumstance. It is to obey and honor our Lord. We see oaths being taken all throughout Scripture, church. We see some of the best of the best of our forefathers of the Old Testament making oaths. Abraham, Isaac, Joshua, David. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul swore to be telling the truth in his letters to the Corinthians and to the Romans. In Romans 9.1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We even see an angel take an oath in Revelation chapter 10. God's word not only models this because, but it calls us to stand by the oaths that we've made. So oaths, hear me clearly church, in the reading of these passages, is not in and of themselves wrong. What is wrong is when they are misused or used with the intent to deceive or when they are not followed through with. The command of the Lord is that we are to keep our oath. Numbers chapter 30, 1 and 2. This is what the Lord has commanded. Notice it doesn't say this is what the Lord has recommended. If a man vows to a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. I want you, church, to really do some business and take seriously these things this morning. When you say you will do something, are you casual to its end? Or do you take the most purposeful and organized steps to see it through? Some of you might think, well, I, Pastor, I just don't really operate that way. I'm not a really organized person. I'm not that planned. The problem is, this is not an excuse for not seeing through what you said you would do. Christian, you represent the Lord in all you do. And all that you do should be done to the glory of the Lord. There is no room for laziness or excuse-making, we need to follow through with our word. Church, we need to take this most seriously. How seriously, pastor, should I take this? Well, let me give you a very sobering example that we see in Scripture. Judges chapter 11. Here we read about a flippant oath, an oath that didn't need to be made. God had already promised what 
Jephthah was looking to secure, and yet he makes an oath that he didn't need to make. He vowed to the Lord God, if you will give the Amorites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Judges 11, 30 and 31. The problem is Jephthah doesn't know what's going to come out of his door when he comes home from battle. And when he returns victorious to his home, as the Lord followed through with what he said he would do, what came out of his door was his daughter, his only child. Not only did he love her greatly as a good father would, she was his only hope for his legacy and family line to continue. Now some of you are really honest in the moment. You're like, I wouldn't sacrifice my daughter. I wouldn't fulfill that oath. And therein lies the issue of how we take oaths all too casual, especially ones we make before the Lord. Let me ask you, at the end of the day, even when unbelievable loss, pain, hardship is before you, will you stand as a person of faith in God and keep your promise, or will you bail out and take the road that is best for you, even if it means betraying an oath you made to God or in His name. See, the mistake that Jephthah made was to vow something that he did not need to. And because he did, he paid an incredible price. This is the point James is making in our text. Don't make vows in ways or in times you don't need to. Take seriously every vow you make. Jephthah serves as a sobering example. He rashly made a vow to sacrifice whatever came out of his house. If God would give him victory, victory that God had already promised him, instead of breaking his vow to keep it, he sacrificed her. He followed through with his vow. Now we don't know if that sacrifice meant her death or her being sent away a lifetime virgin which seems to be where the narrative goes next. She was to never have kids or make for him a legacy or a family heritage. What is so awesome, though, in this testimony, as sobering as it is, is the daughter's faith at work. Look with me at Judges 11.36. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Wow. There's someone who is holding high an oath made to God, even though it's going to mean a complete change in the trajectory of her life. For her to say, may it be as you have promised, is an incredible display of faith and uprightness, and right conviction that longs to honor God in keeping the oath that her father made. Faith at work is most important here. Not convenience. Not horizontal relationships or personal gain. Do you see why this serves as a most sobering evidence that we must be wise in swearing oaths? Another quick evidence that oaths are appropriate when done rightly is the fact that God himself makes oaths. And you go, well, why does he need to validate himself? For God is truthful in all he is and does. And this is true, but it is another way that God graciously condescends himself to model for us what this looks like. We, we read in Hebrews chapter 6, 13-17, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I was blessed, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Peter brings to memory uh, in Acts 2.30 the oath that God made to David, King David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, speaking of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. The recipients of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, are reminded that God swears his wrath will be put on those who remain in their sin. Do not have a Savior in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law did not prohibit oaths, but demanded that a person be true to the oaths that they made. Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. James surely has this on his mind in writing his letter. Leviticus 19 is of particular central importance to James. We know this because he's referenced it already a number of times. One example of this is in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Him very much referencing Leviticus 19, verse 18. In light of all this, church, James commands us not, not to not swear or not to make oaths as a blanket prohibition, but to do this rightly and wisely and truthfully. Do not swear, and see his specific nature of his word here, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Why those three points of reference? What is he trying to say here? Well, the source of this emphasis is based on Jesus' teaching that we find in two places in Matthew's Gospel. Look with me first at Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, And that's where we could hear that little phrase and walk away and go, see, Jesus said, never make an oath. No. I'll give you context in a moment. But hear the clarity, same as James is doing. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do you see the tie-in? And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more that this than this comes from evil. See, in the context of reading this passage rightly, Jesus is critiquing Pharisees and the Jewish culture's normative practices of manipulating others with their vow-making. See, the rabbinic tradition in that day essentially said, unless your vow was to the Lord or in the name of the Lord, it was considered breakable. So they essentially had these little loopholes of ways they could swear to something by which I don't don't have to be bound by that. It's our modern day way of doing, oh, I promise I'm going to do that, and crossing our fingers behind our back. So I'm deceiving you to say I'm going to do something, although I'm resting on this, man-made thing by which, oh, that wasn't true. My fingers were crossed. I'm not going to get into where all that comes from. What these people were doing was swearing by the city or by heaven or the temple or their heads, thinking that those things are not authoritative, and so therefore my promise is not binding. They felt justified to not see their commitment through. Jesus, again, admonishes Strongly, listen to his words. This manipulation in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, 
who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, they're bound by their oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is essentially saying what James is saying in our passage, which is not to play shadow games or finger crossing or resting in the escape of unspoken fine print, but to simply let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. To be people of our word. So he's not saying don't make O's. The, the critique in these particulars is don't make shady O's that you're not going to see through. Be honest. Be truthful. Be mindful of the promises you make. Church, we are not to play games when making an oath, a vow, or a commitment. And then say later, you were just kidding, crossed your fingers, or whatever other excuse you can come up with. Whatever man-made terms you feel that you're resting on that make your vow not binding, God says it's binding. Whatever you made your oath on in connection to, to part of God's creation is God's dominion. Therefore, it brings Him into it. That's the point Jesus is making. He is present. He is truth. And He wants you, His people, to be truthful. So James says what Jesus says which is very plain. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. James' emphasis here, again, is on our words, and that our words are very connected to the testimony of our faith and our faith at work. Church, your words matter. If you remember, James has dedicated much of this letter that we're winding down and have been in since June, in their study of it, to our words, to our speaking, to our use of our tongue. He speaks of the tongue and our words in every chapter of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 19 and 26. In chapter 2, verse 12. In, in a large portion of chapter 3. In chapter 4, verse 11. And here in chapter 5, verse 12. If you're just joining us, our podcast is available online. And like many people who jump in the middle of a series, they enjoy going back and getting their Bible out at home and starting from the beginning. I'd encourage you to do that. Um, let it be a way to be in God's Word throughout the week more than we typically are, which is all for your good and for a growth with God. You might be thinking, why so much talk about the tongue, about our words? Isn't it the heart that matters? Isn't it the inner person that produces either sin or good works? And the answer is yes. And that's James' point of emphasis of why he talks about our words. Because it's an evidence of our faith at work. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6.45 This means that our words reveal our heart. This is James' reason for so much focus on our words. If we have true faith in God, then that faith will show itself in our words, in our truth-telling, in our honoring God with our words. The prohibition against false swearing reflects the truth that a spirit-transformed heart will reveal itself in honest speech. The Bible is clear that we are to be honest. Uh, one of the great places we see this is in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24, and then in a moment, 25. Look with me at 17 through 24. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul emphasizes here conversion. You, you're not going to do any of this under the Lord. When you're dead in your sin, your mind is corrupt to do only sinful things. You need to be awakened. You need to be reborn. You need faith in Christ. Power of God. Before salvation, your practices while dead in sin were sinful. Sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity are his examples. That we are to be in Christ, to be renewed, and that new self is given to righteousness and holiness. That's what he's just stated. So what are the new practices this produces? Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak with truth. Like James, Paul emphasizes that our faith at work means we will be truthful in our speech. If you're truly converted, truly saved, this will be a fruit of that work of God in you. Again, will we do it perfectly? No. We fight our sin every day. We need to grow and be sanctified and mature. But it will be an ongoing work until, until He takes us home in glory. Our yes will mean yes, and our no will mean no. We will honor God by remaining committed to our, to our O's, no matter what it cost us. Paul gives this same instruction to the church in Colossae. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Do you hear him saying almost the same thing he said at Ephesus? And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Plain and simple, God commands his redeemed people to be people of our word. And in Christ you are able to do this growingly. So I ask you personally today, are you careful in your commitments to be sure that you can see them through? Are you very aware of the seriousness of the oath that you make in different situations? Does this give you cause to rethink how you have flippantly considered reneging on commitments and covenants that you've made in the past? I pray if that conviction is real, you would confess it as sin and turn from it unto a practice that honors God. For example, church, this is why we should never threaten divorce in the heightened state of an argument within a marriage. The very idea of breaking our covenant before the Lord is not to be tossed around like it's always on the edge or something we would do. That's not the way that covenant until death do you part is meant to be handled. It devalues and dishonors the permanence of the vow you made. No matter how hard or good it is, I am one with you until death do us part. Marriage is a sacred vow made before God, and it should, not, it should be treated as such. What about our financial commitments, maybe financial commitments that you've made? Are you all too quick to shirk debt and make it someone else's problem? You spent someone else's money and now don't want to deal with that debt, and so you're looking to put it off? Are you the kind of person who commits to a job or a project or a task 
and then doesn't see it through on time. Church, we have much more at stake than our horizontal circumstances or conveniences. See, in our flesh, I will renege on my commitment to have what's better for me during the next phase of my life because I serve my flesh. But if I belong to the Lord, I will honor God. I will see it through. We are to be representatives of the one true God. Think about it this way with me. This, I pray this helps. Our testimony of God is the very reason why he gives you more days here on earth. Those temporary conveniences that your flesh wants to long for to break an oath are temporary. But your opportunity to make much of the name of the Lord it has eternal impact on it and is the very reason why you're here. To throw off our word or promise for personal convenience or lazy habits is to throw away the very opportunities God has given us to make much of his name in a world full of liars and cheats. See the wake of the testimony that we get to make in Christ and its purpose, its impact. Church, we don't not follow through on our promises because no one else does it. Did you catch what I just said there? Sometimes we're guilty of going, oh, well, no one else is keeping that promise. So why do I need to follow through? That's not why we do or don't do something. We follow through because the Lord has commanded us to and because it honors His holy name. This is why you should not be making contractual commitments or promises or making major changes in your life alone. It is good practice to seek godly counsel and check yourself and your situation because our commitments that we make affect us. They affect our God-given priorities. I, I can't tell you how essential this is. Before you make big decisions that you would slow down, invite godly people, mature people, who aren't going to tell you what you want to hear or tell you what serves them, but tell you what honors God, is good and necessary. Why? Because any of us, myself included, are guilty of framing something up to see it the way I want to see it. And it's, this has become a practice of your leadership, something we're trying to disciple and teach our congregation from the top down. And I'll be honest, it's not the natural workings of my flesh. I don't have something I really want to do or have and then go before, put it before my trusted brothers and sisters and say, I'm going to heed your counsel <laughs> when I really want to do that or have that thing, right? My flesh wants to say, forget that. I'm just going to go do it. I'm just going to make the promise. I'll jump in. I'll make the commitment. I'll take the new job. I'll add this to whatever. I'll take on the debt. I'll buy the car, whatever. And then there's these ramifications and consequences that will come for months, years, decades. We've, we've discovered the joy of the protection and the wisdom of the counsel of many. One of the worst things you could do is get used to trying to run your life and faith on your own. One of the best things you could do is to have trusted brothers and sisters that you would invite in to say, will you check me? Will you, will you make sure I'm seeing this rightly? What a beautiful, wonderful thing it is to have that. Those who are truly saved will honor God in truth. They will be people who honor their commitments. Therefore, they will be wise in making their commitments. They will be trustworthy so that what they say they will do, they will do. And what they say they will not do, they will not do. Your yes be yes, and your no be no. Let us not forget James' warning at the end of the verse, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Those who practice lies and are liars prove to not be of the Father of light, the Father of truth. They prove to be of the Father of lies. Therefore, they are under condemnation. 
In closing, listen to John's words in his first epistle. So good. 1 John 3, 8 through 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is James' point. Your faith at work, church, will produce a truthful follow-through of your commitments and your oaths. And if that practice is not there, you prove that that faith is not real and therefore under condemnation. It's another evidence of our faith at work. If you are truly saved, you belong to Jesus, you will tell the truth. You will be known for being trustworthy and truth-tellers. You will practice these things and therefore prove to be men and women of faith and therefore not under condemnation. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together. What a wonderful joy and gift it is to meet together like this, to fellowship and to study your holy word. You are a good God. You are working us in many mighty ways, even in loving us enough this morning to confront maybe some of our practices or habits or excuses that we've made in this area, to love us enough to refine us and call us in repentance to turn from these practices unto practices that honor you, that we would no longer flippantly make decisions and commitments, but that we would value walking together in Christ, that we would not go pursue things on our own, see the trappings of that. We would benefit by the joy it is to be part of the body of Christ. We thank you for the provision of your holy word and what it means to um, have it in our language to study your revelation and what you would have us to know. And I pray, Lord, as we close this morning in song, that we would consider these words of King David in the famous Psalm 23 as the song reflects. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name we pray.